2: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Suk Yong Kim, Professor of Theatre and Director of the Center for Performance Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. who will be talking about her book, K-Pop Live, Fans, Idols, and Multimedia Performance, which was published last year, 2018, by Stanford University Press. K-pop very likely needs no introduction to listeners of this podcast, or indeed anyone else interested in pop culture, as this multimedia phenomenon has been a growing presence in Asia and around the world for many years now. As our guest today observes, K-pop is an animal that thrives on excess, end quote, as larger than life stars give amazing vocal and dance performances, which are promoted via a dizzying array of multimedia platforms in an ever-transforming range of styles, fashions, and genres. All in all, it's pretty hard to ignore K-pop. And as Suk-yong kim makes clear, we certainly shouldn't be ignoring it as it provides such a revealing window into all manner of critically important subjects, from people's interactions with technology versus in-person interaction, to neoliberal economics, Asian and geopolitical uh, entanglements across the world, and the most cutting-edge interfaces between artistic performance and new tech, from live chat to holograms. K-pop live, takes us deep into this dazzling world, tracing the technological, economic and political conditions which have underlain K-pop's emergence and success, teasing out the entangled threads of music, dance, video, social media and commerce which make up the wider K-pop tapestry, and even arguing in the process for new understandings of what the K in K-pop should be seen to stand for. Kim's work is based on ethnographic research at gigs and conventions, interviews with industry players, and one gets the feeling from reading this really engaging and entertaining book, no small amount of embodied induction as a fan and fascinated observer of K-pop itself. In any case, though, to hear more about how deep this fandom goes and many other matters, I'll say Suk-Yong Kim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, thanks for agreeing to appear. Uh, I have to say I hugely enjoyed this book and, and learned a tremendous amount from it. Um, but uh, Suk-young, perhaps I could begin by asking you a bit about yourself and your background uh, and how you came to focus on K-pop specifically. I think some of your earlier work was uh, about North Korea and other subjects. So could you give us a bit of a picture of how this uh, this topic came into your life?
1: Uh, sure. Sure. Um... You know, my past books were on North Korean state produced propaganda performances. And, um, you know, those are, uh, quote unquote high budget shows that were, uh, enjoying the full fledged state support from North Korea, uh, intended to kind of educate and organize society. I mean, culture in North Korea has, a place that is hard for us to imagine, which is really the way the future looks like, you know, it it is a kind of mechanism through which people kind of envision better future. So, um, you know, while I was researching on North Korea, many people asked, I mean, how is our society different? And, you know, how would you characterize what North Korean state is doing to their state as being different from how our hyper-commercial culture in so-called Western uh, world is doing to the minds of our young people. So this question really made me think about, yeah, how, how can I respond to this rather challenging question? And this was a time when K-pop was landing uh, in the U.S. Uh, social media in a very visible way. Um, in 2012, SAIS Gangnam Style hit uh, YouTube and social media in a very conspicuous way. I mean, you could not spend a day avoiding Gangnam Style, you know, listening to it or hearing about it. And, um, you know, these two kind of... Uh, trend of kind of thoughts came together and made me really want to address the question that uh, puzzled me, right? I mean, how are media choices that are offered to us really a choice? And how do we actually connect to each other and build a community while also being manipulated by broader forces behind it? So... I started really looking into the media network uh, and, um, you know, contents like K-pop's dissemination and who are the players behind it and whether that makes or breaks human connections, you know, that we used to really have through live interaction. And I guess one uh, thing that really puzzled me was how K-pop is ubiquitous online, right? It, its its natural habitat is YouTube, Twitter, social media networks, um, all these mediated human interactions, whereas it was promoting itself as Live music. I mean, as paradoxical as it sounds, there's a lot of simulations of live interactions and real, genuine connections uh, that are fostered in K-pop industry. So that's why I decided to particularly focus on the meaning of liveness in K-pop industry.
2: Right, right. No, that, that makes sense as a, as a kind of trajectory. Uh, but I just wonder, at, at the beginning, kind of pre your uh, interest in North Korean official culture and so on, did you come at that from a direction of interest in uh, politics and, and cultural promotion? Or was it performance per se that had been your initial focus kind of in your doctoral studies and so on?
1: Um, Yeah, great question. Um, I actually have a doctoral degree in Russian and Slavic studies. Oh, okay. and, uh, that was really the starting point. Um, I went to Moscow to study uh, Russian language and literature in 91 and 92. And there I encountered North Korean students and they fascinated me. Um, you know, our preconceived notions of North Koreans are that they're really clandestine and secretive and Are ignorant of outside world, but these were really lively, well-educated students that I became friends with. And although I wrote my dissertation on uh, Slavic folklore, I mean, thoughts about North Koreans always stayed with me uh, and fascinated me. So um, I guess the kind of political potential of life storytelling and performance and folklore um, kind of uh, Migrated into studying North Korean state propaganda, and um, you know, in in society like North Korea, you cannot really segregate politics and performance. Right? I mean, politics is performance, and performance is politics. It's so uh, inter interwined in a way that it's hard to um, kind of think of political theater as a particular brand of theater all theater is political and vice versa so hmm.
2: um, well i think you uh, the, the kind of theatricality of uh, yeah certainly uh, historically soviet uh, official culture and uh, other um, state socialist uh, regimes or, or 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 political um arrangements that that have a big a very strong official cultural output that that looks like something very unique. But I think uh, what you show in this book uh, is that, that yeah, the, that question of how different are we or how different are, are set, uh, societies that are set up quite differently? And the, the differences are actually uh, somewhat more nuanced than a big uh, clash between um, socialist countries or, or historically socialist countries like the Soviet Union and North Korea and what was going on uh, in South Korea. Um, but uh, also in terms of k-pop itself at what point did that kind of come into your life uh, as a <laughs> as a as a phenomenon uh, you mentioned uh, kongnam style being a, a, a sort of pivotal moment of the global emergence but in korea uh, were you always a fan of the uh, of the popular music scene or, or how did uh, how, how does it fit within your own personal personal music tastes
1: <laughs> right so uh, my closet dream is to become a singer maybe it's too late <laughs> or maybe not no, no, So
2: no.
1: as a teenager growing up in South Korea um, in the 70s and 80s I never skipped the uh, you know top of the chart music um, shows on TV um, I watched all the variety shows that I could uh, which featured these singers but you know I mean Korean music really made it big until the new millennium. And as a college professor, I would start seeing these subtle changes on campus. Um, You know, I came to the States in 96, 1996. And back then people didn't even know that South Korea had its own pop music, right? Nobody bothered to ask. Nobody cared. And um, after, um, you know, after the first decade of uh, New Millennium, I started seeing my students kind of asking me questions about certain K-pop idols or, you know, some random student would pass by wearing some K-pop idol T-shirt. And I thought this is no longer a kind of, you know, youth subculture and it's right on the cusp of entering something major. and it just really piqued my curiosity as to what is driving this particular transition. And um, just in daily life, I started seeing more and more of K-pop idols just surfacing in mainstream as well as, um, you know, uh, live tour circuits. So I think all of those kind of trickled down into my uh, research and kind of kept kept me going. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well it comes through very clearly that the this really sincere uh, interest and, and, and passion for this i think and i love your voice throughout the book really uh, constantly moving between uh, what is uh, as you mentioned perhaps a, a lifelong um ambition or a, a, a music, musical dream um but also uh, you know the the realities of being a researcher and um your uh, I, uh your, you mentioned and and uh, and uh I, I i noticed that it's still the case that your twitter handle is dr ajuma uh, a uh, a sort of moniker you came up with in connection with doing some of this research um as as a as a person who is not the kind of teenage and 20 year old uh, classic fan of k-pop could you say a bit more about uh how you actually did the research what the uh, kind of activities you engaged in were to get into this uh, k-pop scene <sighs>
1: Of course. Um, First, you have to digest a multitude of online contents uh, regarding K-pop. And I don't just mean by uh, K-pop idols' musical performance right, which is just the starting point of a much broader network of media contents. Um, Fan reaction videos, cover dance, um, and other variety shows, and both fan and idol generated media contents just proliferate, right? And all the retweets and um, endless, you know, feed of tweets. I mean, so it's, it's pretty busy just catching up with that. But then, um, I think in order to really understand K-pop's global reach, I mean, you really have to understand the fans, and that's that's a very difficult job. And um, I, I think I have just started to scratch the surface, and I really hope that future generation of scholars would research. Uh, K-pop fandom, uh, more systematically and more in depth because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest, uh, kind of research areas regarding K-pop studies. But what I did with my limited mobility and time was to really kind of, uh, eavesdrop on their conversation online as well as offline, um, and try to, um, kind of enter unique, fan space that kind of uh, emerges in concerts or particular fan culture. And, you know, having young college students as my constant conversation partner really helps. um, They know so much more than I do, um, you know, because I personally cannot be on Twitter or, (laughs) you know, in front of my screen 24-7 like this Generation Z can. So I try to really learn from my students as much as I can. Um, and I accepted every single teaching opportunities in Korea to be there and kind of feel the vibe and also to see how state really uses the cyber nationalism to kind of ride on K-pop's popularity. So it's I mean, I, I really fall short on my efforts in terms of fan studies. And I think, you know, there are many talented young scholars who are going to do deep research into this in the future.
2: Well, this is uh, even uh, that notwithstanding, this is a a fantastic uh, uh, kind of survey of of the different worlds of of fandom. And that really leads us quite neatly, I think, into the the book, uh, the the body of the book itself. And you begin the introduction, uh, taking us straight into the action, really, at an Exor concert. uh, And you, you... Give us a really vivid picture of your own position in relation to uh, in, to, to the performance that's kind of going on in front of you, um, and the feeling of, of liveness, which you've already alluded to, um, which uh, which is something that uh, the book as a whole uh, seeks to theorise. I think. Um, so, could you say something about what this idea of liveness is, and and, and what is it you're seeking to understand uh, under this this term of of liveness?
1: Um, sure, I know it's it's such a abstract concept, but what fascinated me about liveness is that it has so many uh, kind of secondary or derivative meanings that are actually more essential than the uh, kind of primary meaning of life, which often translates into real-time coexistence between fans and stars, performers and spectators. So this co-present in time and space is just one starting point to think about how we exist as subjects in this mediatized world, right? What are the technological implications to make somebody feel that we are having a live interaction, although we're not in the same time uh, or space zone? Um, So the book kind of divides two uh, big kind of trend of thought regarding liveness, which is to look at the technological networks to make us feel that we're part of the live interaction. But I guess... um, that's just an entry point into thinking about much more significant dimension of liveness, which is how do we feel in this world uh, that we are actually having a meaningful connection to other and how are communities built in this mediatized world? How do we really feel the sense of being alive? Um, and those are really existential questions, if you think about it. And um, it's, it's a hard question to answer. So, you know, in terms of K-pop, um, K-pop's liveness, I think what, what's, what's just most astonishing about K-pop as a cultural phenomenon is its global fandom. And, uh, you know, one of the main arguments I make about fans is that they don't see K-pop just as consumer culture. They see it as a kind of, phenomena, right, that they're inherently part of. They are the makers of this phenomena and idols perhaps is just a medium to mitigate its progress. So um, it's it's quite astonishing to see how something like K-pop can be both uh, just, you know, the most dazzling example of consumerist culture of today, but at the same time, giving fans a feeling of being alive by joining a community that they can truly connect to, although they have never seen each other. So it's both this uh, kind of heightened consumerist culture at the same time, truly impactful cultural movement.
2: Mm, mm. And uh, well, th- without getting sort of too uh, deep into the into the, I guess, anthropological weeds, if you like, the 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 book's insights into who we are as subjects uh, when we are navigating this constant tension between uh, a, a, what you call, I think, a, a yearning for a sense of belonging and aliveness, even amidst the fragmentation and isolation, which the technology uh, that we use to try to generate that very sense of connection is also distancing us it's also kind of keeping us uh, or, or it's a, it's a uh, something that is also a function of being quite far apart in in physical space um, and I think that is that it's a tremendous kind of um, contribution of the of the book that, that it helps us to understand how uh, I guess yeah, modern <laughs> or postmodern subjects are uh, are, are negotiating this. Um, but another sort of uh, really compelling dimension is your, your broader sort of dissection of K-pop. And um, I mentioned this in my introduction there, but uh, the K of K-pop, you kind of give a, a really fascinating uh, expansion of what uh, that K might stand for. Um, we'll come perhaps to the Korea aspect uh, in a moment. But what about the, the other kind of ways in which you understand uh, K? What, what else does, could it stand for in this, uh, in this world
1: Oh, yes. I had so much fun writing that section because (laughs) K could stand not only for Korea, but, um, you know, many other things to really capture K-pop's uniqueness. Um, You know, one definition I use is that K-pop stands for kaleidoscopic pop, meaning that it is not just music, it is not just dance, but it is total multimedia performance. So that kind of multimedia aspect is captured in kaleidoscopic pop Um, at times I use it as Kleenex pop which stands for how K-pop aims for fast production and fast consumption so just like you know Kleenex tissue that you use once and throw away I mean most of K-pop music is you know um, just circulating for a couple of weeks and then they disappear so um, it's it's a high...
2: 101 the 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 boy band uh, that appears on the front cover of the book don't don't even exist anymore right or they've they've officially disbanded so i think that kind of illustrates that quite well
1: oh sadly yes because i was a huge fan and i <laughs> uh, intentionally put 101 on the cover image because i knew that the band would be disbanded in a year and a half <laughs> uh, okay, okay
2: love it, love right. it.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I use K-pop as ketchup pop, uh, meaning that you know it has a, it has a kind of formulaic uh, kind of outcome. It has predictable taste, somewhat predictable production process. You know, just like mass-produced uh, consumerist products. So, it kind of you know goes back and forth uh, between all those registers of K.
2: Mm, mm, no, that, I think that's a, it's a, a great kind of. Uh... Uh, way of exploring the many uh, multifaceted dimensions of of, of the, the the musical kind of uh, world and, and and performative world that you explore here, um, but but perhaps we'll return to the I guess the very most obvious and, and uh, most commonly used K uh, the, the Korean dimension um, what about the Koreanness of this music and 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 specifically I suppose uh, one, one thing that I uh, really found incredibly uh, revealing and insightful uh, in this introduction too is is your exploration of this notion of hung um, the kind of uh, untranslatable term that, that perhaps uh it encodes certain aspects of uh, warmth and, and uh, inclusivity, but also spontaneity and excitement and uh, many of the, the things which you see as being inherently important to, to, uh, to, to K-pop and, and the Korean dimension of it. Could you say a bit more about that uh, and the Korean uh, identity behind the, 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 the music?
1: right so um you know it, th- that korean aspect of k-pop was really difficult to tackle because i mean you don't want to essentialize you know about what uh what a country is uh not to mention korea right but at the same time i mean as somebody who grew up uh in korea uh, and spent formative years um, in that country and had and was a south korea for the uh, most of <laughs> you know uh, one's life i i cannot Help, But to notice how uh, Koreans just love singing, the spontaneous gathering of people will always end up in some kind of singing and having fun. And um, sadly enough, uh, due to... Korea's modern history, which has been marred by colonialization and division and war and separation, this aspect of uh, the spontaneous joy that Koreans have when they gather as community has been less studied and has been kind of overshadowed by the notion of Han, which is this grief, another untranslatable term, right? Um, So I I kind of thought that K-pop's kind of... uh, Global popularity is a very good occasion to bring light, uh, this no, very unique notion of hung, um, which is embedded in this kind of, uh, almost ritualistic participation of communal joy and, um, you know, that erasure between performer and spectator that we all come together to, uh, be a part of this kind of, you know, joyful moment, um, Mostly through singing and sometimes dancing, but, you know, for the most part, Koreans sing when they <laughs> drink and <laughs> gather as communities. So um, I I felt like, you know, one thing that is truly kind of unique to K-pop is that it is, yes, uh, a performance built in discipline. Yes, it is a difficult industry to uh, kind of, you know, sustain and survive. But at the same time, I think what has been really central for performers and also for fans who really enjoy the cultural movement is that there is that rapport uh, of kind of communal understanding um, and fans and stars often exchanging their uh, positionality and truly kind of coming together as one community. I mean, despite the hyper-commercialization, that aspect of whom cannot be denied.
2: Mm, mm. No, I, I'd agree with that, and I, I, I also, I mean, I think you you navigate the the, the kind of uh, potential dangers of essentialization very well, and, and make clear that that what you're uh, the point you're making is based on on very sound evidence, and uh, without wishing to sort of uh, put too fine a point on it, I uh, living in Japan now, I think uh, a, a, a relative absence of hung is uh, uh, something I i somewhat miss uh, but, but that's that's my own uh, that's my own issue there um but uh, that that's great well i think that's um given us a pretty good picture of some of the key um uh, points that the that the book will be addressing throughout. So uh, we'll move forward perhaps into the into the uh, chapters themselves from the introduction. Um, and you kind of structure it uh, according to various media platforms, uh, broadly speaking, uh, from TV through social media, music videos and live shows, um, although you also are clear to uh, po- or careful to point out that it's fairly futile trying to uh, draw rigid lines between these different forms. Um, but uh, to kind of lead us into this uh, very um complex mediatized world. Uh, your your sort of historical introduction I think gives a really uh, super interesting um perspective on on, on- what the conditions were that allowed for K-pop to emerge. Um, could you say something about how, uh, sort of how you see, see it coming about? Um, and I'd be particularly interested, uh, in one of the absolute best bits for the whole book, I thought, was your uh, theorization of the Teletubbies generation. So <laughs> could you perhaps uh, could bring in some, some of that in your, uh, in your sort of historicizing uh, uh, little accounts here?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, many scholars, including myself, point to mid-1990s as the uh, first kind of beginning of K-pop, as we know it. I mean, narrowly defined as, uh, you know, teenage um, idol music. Um And that was mid-1990s was an interesting period in many regards. I mean, first, in, in terms of Korean politics, we have a civilian government, which is looking into globalization as its major policy. Uh travel ban on South Korean citizens is lifted. So South Koreans are now able to travel to places uh, as opposed to the previous generation who needed to uh receive permits. So they are truly uh kind of cruising around the globe, and that trend is starting in mid-90s. Um and you know, um young college students in the 90s uh, are spending more time in um their self-grooming and enjoyment as opposed to the previous generation of college students who were the main players of South Korea's democracy movement so these social shifts are also merging with uh, title shifts in media consumption um, you know uh, mid 90s yes I mean you have uh, J-pop as one of the kind of key player in Korean music industry uh, as well as in Asia um, where people used to kind of consume music through their, uh, you know, individual cassette player, right? Um, but then that generation of kind of, you know, Walkman owners are soon to be uh, kind of replaced by MP3 music consumers. And I think this is really important for K-pop's emergence um, because, you know, I mean, Korean musicians used to kind of uh, earn income from sales, you know, uh, by selling their CDs and cassette tapes and LP, uh, yeah. But when music suddenly became free online, uh, you know, suddenly uh, their kind of reliable source of income disappeared almost overnight because everything was downloadable and free. So this really pushed Korean musicians to look Elsewhere. And this is when K pop turns its eye to the world stage. I mean, out of desperation. And this is where also K pop and J pop differ significantly because, you know, Japan is a second largest music industry. um, And the copyrights for artists are relatively well-protected. So, I mean, J-pop artists didn't have to do this, but K-pop artists really had to look for alternative ways to having a career, and they had no other choice but to look beyond Korea. And uh, this is also the time when cable TV was introduced to Korea. Uh, mid-90s, Korean cable network started to bring uh, MTV to Korean um uh, spectators, and uh, merging with the globalization movement. I mean, Korean consumers were now being introduced to Madonna, Michael Jackson, and all other uh, kind of visually driven performances. So all of these came together. And um, on top of everything, I guess, uh, you know, today's K-pop fans who were just infants and toddlers, in mid nineties uh, where all these seismic changes were happening were also regular viewers of Teletubbies <laughs> and uh, Teletubby programming was introduced to uh, cable viewers in Korea. And I myself watched a lot of it because I was babysitting my uh, nieces who were infants and toddlers back then in mid nineties and late nineties. And uh, looking back, I think um Teletubbies played some interesting role in grooming today's K-pop consumers and perhaps YouTube uh, generation in a broad sense, because, um, you know, the uh, Teletubbies bodies, if you look at them, they're interesting media receptacles, you know, they have this embedded screen. Uh, just like Generation Z would love to have this screen as part of the extension of their bodies, you know. I mean, sometimes I take away cell phones from my students because I cannot have a normal class because they're so distracted and they have withdrawal syndrome. <laughs> and Teletubbies have this uh, screen embedded in them. Um, and also the repeated viewing that Teletubbies encourage is, I think, foreshadowing the rise of, uh, kind of, you know, binge-watching and media regurgitation that's so endemic to um, reaction videos and how repeatedly we consume K-pop contents as well as some, you know, viral media contents.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I that I thought was in, incredibly compelling. I mean, I, I, on some level, obviously, uh, there's there's a certain amount of, uh, uh, I don't know kind of eye rolling that you might do about re- being reminded of the kind of again again uh mm-hmm. tubby's refrain um is you know maybe not something I necessarily welcome uh being reminded of on a, on a day to day basis but, but it, as a, as an insight into how uh that kind of um uh it pre is a precursor, a kind of uh predictor to to the, the you know, when you finished watching a, a YouTube video, there's the little round arrow that invites you to what just watch it again, exactly the same thing again. Um, right. and uh, you, you you kind of give a bigger picture there uh, really weaving in the, the technological and, and the political in a sense by discussing uh how Korea obviously at this same over this same period that you're sort of describing here was also becoming the key center for smartphone production Samsung in particular but also LG and other uh, major mobile technology firms um, and how that became kind of embedded in this uh, in this this commercialized pop world um, which I think is uh, yeah I mean tr- tremendous uh, uh, lens onto understanding not just k-pop as a form but also m- modern Korean history in a, in a sense um, but um, we'll move on perhaps um, because although you Give a clear picture of all of this media uh uh, the social media and and the kind of um very high tech uh the place of that within the k-pop world you point out that tv is still pretty important oddly enough even though uh, so much is online um and so in chapter two you uh, discuss a couple of Live TV shows, or t- TV shows in particular, uh, Music Core and After School Club, these two uh, these two South Korean TV programs. What is it that makes TV still have a role within the uh, K-pop, uh, the K-pop world?
1: Um, so I would say that TV was a really important medium uh, for new idols to uh, introduce themselves to public, uh, especially would be fandom. Um, because these uh, top of the TV, uh, top of the chart TV shows uh, usually have very low ratings. Um... Uh, but you know the main uh, spectator group is uh, teenage fans of K-pop, usually uh, female fans, and they were seen as a conduit through which uh, brand new idols can finally debut and start kind of publicizing themselves. Um, so the book deals with one of those shows, Music Core, produced by uh, NBC. but. I would say that that rule has really changed since BTS uh, kind of broke out into the world uh, stage. So, you know, academic publishing really lags behind in its speed, (laughs) and it cannot fully address the rapidly changing real-time reality. Um, And I, if I can go back, I really want to add another chapter dealing with the uh, kind of new model of idol production and <laughs> their career, mainly encapsulated in BTS, uh, who is the leading idol of today. Um, so prior to BTS... Um, Yes, all the uh, K-pop entertainment companies had to work with uh, terrestrial or cable network to debut their idols. Otherwise, it's really hard to promote them um, to broad audience. But BTS was really special in a sense that they come from a rather minor production company at the time of their debut and they decide to circumvent the uh, TV network channels and just target directly their global fandoms through social media. So um, BTS provides a counterexample to some of the arguments made in the book. Um, So if I could go back, I I would love to add a chapter on BTS, but... um, you know one one just just to kind of uh focus on what the book says um one interesting thing about these tv shows is that they're not just consumed on uh tv networks i mean they have a second life which is perhaps more interesting uh meaning that you know those tv shows are produced with youtube uh in mind so um They enjoy actually much broader circulation outside of uh, TV networks when they become YouTube files and can be regurgitated over and over again. So I think um, if anything important can be emphasized in that chapter, I think it's really the kind of this transmedial network of how TV and online space are so intertwined together.
2: Right, right, and you you illustrate how it not only does the TV end up going online, but then the online comes onto TV too through some of these live engagement uh, shows and, and and sort of phone in shows where fans are encouraged to to call in and and speak to their idols, and there are these there, there are outbursts of this hung uh, feeling on over the phone or over video link, and um, you, you you describe the kind of. Uh, role reversal which can occur when fans are showing the artists their own performances of their songs and uh, and really yeah i i, I guess uh, illustrate very well this this real sort of uh, soup of of of, of or, or or blurred lines of of performer and uh, and, and spectator and different um, media presentations. Um, And I think we see the same kind of some of the same sorts of uh, trends in uh, music videos themselves, which is the subject of your next chapter. Uh, And again, you take a couple of specific cases, uh, a video by Tetisor, which is a a sub, uh, I think it was a subgroup of uh, Girls' Generation, right? Um, uh, And then also a a video by G-Dragon. Could you say something about how these music videos uh, kind of demonstrate uh, the the idea of, of liveness, how liveness uh, how uh, people seek to create liveness within music videos, uh, and how they kind of blur performance genres and so on in the music videos that are produced.
1: Yes, yeah, so music videos are so crucial for K-pop to uh show their idols and illustrate what it is about to global audience because most K-pop fans cannot go to live shows, um especially those living in remote areas, I mean outside of the normal uh K-pops, you know, um live tour circuit. So um, so in order to compensate for the lack of live interaction, uh, meaning real time co-presence of performers and fans in the same space, uh, you know, some music videos have devised very clever kind of format to simulate uh, the live interaction, uh, through their music videos. And, uh, my case studies really are good examples to illustrate that. So the first case study, uh, Twinkle, uh, taps into the format of, uh, Broadway style musicals. Um, even the, uh, screen is framed by this crimson curtain parting to reveal the proscenium stage. And, uh, the, the musical tone, and the cultural reference it makes all kind of point to the live uh singers interacting with fans so you have like embedded audience and also musical uh theater makes reference to the supremes and motown culture where um you know these like vivid presence of live voice played such a role in popularizing um the genres so um, I thought that was a really interesting way of making up for the lack of actual live interaction for the vast majority of fans. And G-Dragon's uh music video, uh Who You is another kind of extension of the same idea, but this time G-Dragon uses kind of live performance and fan meeting format to create his music video. So, Uh, from the very inception, fans played a huge role in kind of creating the fabric of the music video, meaning that they came to uh, the actual shooting site of G-Dragon's music video, and they also used their cell phones to shoot G-Dragon's music uh, kind of performance, and some of those fan uh, videos made into the actual final cut of music video. So there is like this um, real interaction between the performer and the fans uh, to kind of simulate the live performance and fan meetings that most music video consumers cannot have access to.
2: Mm, mm. no and th- those I think this is where uh, some of your expertise in, in performance art and in, in uh, the broader picture of, uh, of of how cultural production and performance works really come come to the fore and that uh, this dissection of the uh, the sort of play of genres and the play of uh, historical reference and allusions to other forms of performance art in these videos uh, it's it really uh, c- contextualizes and I think it doesn't make any less fun uh, these these uh, fascinating visual spectacles, uh, but uh, yeah, so it's very important. I think um, background to understanding um, what uh, what this uh, kind of key term of liveness and what uh, uh, means and, and how people are trying to, to produce liveness within potentially not fully live uh performances and 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 displays of of the music. Uh so this I think applies too to the next chapter where uh, you explore hot use of holograms uh in live shows and and also in some of these kind of centers that you can visit uh, K-live and SM Town. Um I hadn't realized actually that hologram Technology in particular was a major government initiative of the Park Geun-hye era, uh, recently ended, uh, last president uh, before now. Um, But uh, could you say a bit more about the the place that holograms have uh, and and how they're being used in K-pop today?
1: Yes, so um, (laughs) this is where Korea, Korea, uh, as in K-pop, really comes into play. And this, I mean, holograms are never sufficient substitute for live performers that fans desperately want to see. I mean, a lot of fans already think that uh, K-pop overall is already so mediatized, right? Because, I mean, usually we encounter K-pop in cyberspace, TV, but to have a live theater format where uh, real audience members are invited into auditorium to be treated to this kind of hollow image of uh, a performer is just not working. (laughs) That's the conclusion of uh, that chapter on hologram. But, um, you know, because why would you see a mediatized image of already highly mediatized star? Uh, It just cannot uh, make up for the the real aura of a real human being. And uh, that chapter that chapter was kind of more inspired by what Korean government was trying to do with K-pop industry. Um, you know, due to this uh, massively failed creative economy policy that was touted by Park Geun-hye um, administration, um, this K-pop industry and Korean state had this kind of rather skeptical marriage uh, with each other that kind of ended in failure. Um, the reasons that I already described that why would you go pay uh, for a live theater ticket to see a mediatized image of a mediatized uh, performer? But I think it was somewhat of a top-down movement from the Korean government to really use K-pop's global visibility to advance its hologram projects. Um, So, you know, you can really see that kind of uh, unsettling relationship between Korean state and K-pop industry and that marriage cannot be, you know, always a perfect one.
2: Right, right. Um and well I wonder in the in the in chapter 5 the sort of final uh, full chapter you you provide a pretty uh, good antidote to that by bringing us right back into uh, live shows and and the concerts that many of which uh, you attended yourself. Um is uh, the marriage there between government initiative and uh, K-pop performance, does it work any better in the context of some of these live shows and, and bigger events like KCON, uh, these kind of bigger conventions that involve K-pop stars and, and government players? Is that a, is that a happier uh, union between government initiative and artistic production?
1: Um, in a way, yes, because at least those uh, <laughs> uh, pop conventions or live uh Concerts feature real stars, and that makes up for everything. Um, Although, um, you know, fans are there not to really uh, understand what Korean government's projects are. I mean, they are interested in Korea and Korean culture in general, but it is always channeled through what they love and whom they love, which are... uh, K-pop stars and K-pop music. So, you know, the marriage between the state and um, K-pop industry is no more successful than (laughs) in hologram shows that I described. I mean, I've witnessed many instances where fans were just bored and held, you know, captive audience when they had to be treated to all these government-led initiatives to propagate Korean culture in a top-down manner. But fans uh, kind of tolerate that just because at the end of the tunnel, they will have a live interaction with the stars. And I've seen many instances where Korean government really held these global K-pop fandoms at their hostage, you know, and kind of, kind of, showing the bait which is the k-pop idol at the end of the tunnel and you know sign the treaty between governments or introduce their initiatives so yeah i mean you know what k-pop has to come from uh bottom up it can never be a successful project top down
2: I see. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned one. Actually, this is in the conclusion, but one quite uh, sort of amusing slash tragic incident where uh, there's there's a lot of hype being generated for some particular K-pop stars, and then a quick announcement that Park Gunhee herself is in the house, and the camera quickly pans to her, and the the cheering hasn't doesn't have time to die down uh, when people sort of find themselves inadvertently uh, cheering for, uh, you know, obviously a president that ultimately proved to be extremely unpopular. Um, So uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting use, uh, interesting exploration of how the kind of the bait is used there. Um, And I guess as we sort of come towards the end, um, could you just give us a bit of a picture of your own uh, role at some of these uh, conventions and, and how you, were positioned uh, in relation to the events that occur, and, and m- maybe just describe a bit more what kinds of things are happening at these at these conventions.
1: Oh, these conventions have grown so much bigger uh, in just past five years, um, and you know, being a resident of LA, uh, I have privilege of attending annual uh, K-pop uh, convention KCON that's organized by CJENM, and. Um, you know, I I am a very skeptical person. I mean, as a critical uh professor, researcher, you have to be skeptical. You have to question and you have to put a lot of things under microscopic scrutiny to really make sure that you're making a persuasive argument. And I am, you know, in many cases, very skeptical of this affective relationship that's spun between fans and idols. And I sometimes feel sorry for fans who might, manipulated by these business plans and uh, all that. But (laughs) having said that, when I go to the KCON, I truly come to realization that it's perhaps not about idols or industry or business that's involved, but it's really about the community that is spontaneously growing and fostered, perhaps using K-pop or K-pop idols as just intermediary to build those communities. So, you know, I go to see many uh, idols and their acts, but what I end up coming back home is how passionate the fans are. And, you know, in that sense, I think idol or icon to describe K-pop performers might be an appropriate expression because what they do is to mitigate and channel those connections that didn't exist before. Um, So K-pop perhaps is a bridge building place for different subjects who feel unconnected and fragmented to come together as some kind of genuine community. So, you know, um, that's all I can say. It, it is truly astonishing, and it could be enigmatic and paradoxical. But the true love that exists in K-pop community is there.
2: Mm, mm. No, I think that's a, it's a very poignant uh, kind of uh, conclusion that you come to overall. Because as you describe these conventions, which involve. Uh, both, of course, very obvious government uh, participation, but also big business. And it's easy to see fans just as, uh, as you say, sceptically, just as subjects to Overwhelming kind of neoliberal uh, and, and state-dominated logics and regimes, um, but but I think your your reflections there uh, on 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 youth and on passion and on the kind of search for 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 meaning and connection um, and the sincerity with, with with which many people feel those things in relation to uh, this bit with wider K-pop sphere. Uh, it's very yeah, it's very uh, evocative and and I think an important balance there to. To the book as a whole, so I I, I would urge listeners to uh, go out and, uh, and and read the whole thing because uh, it has a, a great deal more to say on all these subjects. Um, but Soo Young, um, I've taken up quite a bit of your time, uh, and I'd like to uh, thank you very much. But before uh, we do close out I just ask you what is it you're up to now I mean how has your has your career continued to follow the uh the k-pop wave or uh, are you uh, departing in other directions what, what kind of projects do you have on the go currently
1: Uh, since completing k-pop live i've uh written a few more articles on k-pop industry that i couldn't quite address in the book uh which includes the racial dynamics of k-pop performers and the implications of global fandom um another article deals with uh the intersections of K-pop and fashion industry and fashion practices and how uh, K-pop not only becomes an online runway, but also uh, it it is seen as something that has the self-reflective moment to think about fast fashion industry recycling and the ethical dimensions of consumption so i analyzed bts's music video spring day and Jeep dragon's "Crooked," Kid, which feature really interesting messages about uh, clothing and fashion and fast industry
2: mm, great great well it's good that bts have made it into your written output then so that so you kind of provide some some updates to uh to to the Uh, you know the latest developments uh as as you mentioned they they weren't so present in the in the book um but that's great fantastic well thank you very much again for uh agreeing to appear on the show today it was uh, really fantastic talking to you about this
1: thank you for having me
2: and listeners thank you too for listening as ever to new books in east asian studies which is a podcast on the new books network we'll speak to you next time goodbye